0: Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show.
1: If you actually flip that paradigm on its head, that traditional thinking you can be successful as well. So treat your employees really well. Treat the environment with respect.
0: Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. Joining us this week are Dan Kleban, co-founder, and Ann Marasich, director of marketing and communication for Maine Beer Company in Freeport, Maine. Maine Beer Company was founded in 2009 during the financial crisis, a time that was challenging for attorneys such as Dan. Having witnessed the ugly underbelly of capitalism, Dan and his brother, Dave, sought to build a brewery that could be successful by maintaining a moral approach to sustainability. By treating the environment and his employees well, the company became a success story in the region. In our conversation, we also touch on the construction of the company's renowned beers and signature profiles, advocacy with the Brewers Association, and running a family organization. Before jumping in, I'd like to note that we're still recording remotely for now, so please excuse any technical hiccups. Let's dive and get heavy. Dan and Ann, welcome to Heavy Hops. We're happy to have you. Good to be here. Thank you. So let's start with uh, how we kind of got to where we are today. Uh, starting with you, Dan, uh, tell us a little bit about the pull towards, uh, homebrewing and why did you kind of go uh, how did you find your way into brewing professionally?
1: Um, well, the, the, the pull to homebrewing, um, really started back in 2006. Um, I was, I, I, was a am a recovering attorney, and, and at that time I was in law school, and um, law students, if they're fortunate enough, get summer jobs at law firms that, that pay them a little bit of money, and so I, I got a job at a law firm up here in Portland, Maine, and one of the partners at the law firm invited myself uh, and other who call themselves summer associates uh, over to his house for a, 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 he called it, you know, beer class, and he'd, he'd, he'd type up this, this syllabus, and he'd take us kind of on a a tasting tour of the world. And, you know, he'd, he'd give us a little bit of history, a little bit of education of, you know, this, this is what makes an ale, an ale, a lager, a lager. Because uh, up until this point, I knew nothing about beer other than I liked to, to drink it and, you know, you know get drunk and, and knew that, that, you know, uh, knew what I liked, and knew what I didn't like, but didn't know why. Um, so anyway, he would, he would kind of walk us, you know, Walk us uh, around the world, um, and that was kind of my introduction into kind of what makes you know, uh, a, a, like I said, a lager a lager and an ale an ale and, um, and it also turns out that he was a longtime home brewer. Uh, yeah. He grew up in the Pacific Northwest and um, you know started home brewing back in the '70s. And uh, so after the class was over, was probably a month or so later, um, I was just talking to him over the water cooler in the in the office and he said he was you know planning this new saison he was gonna gonna brew uh with hops that he grew in his uh, and off the side of his garage and um i'm like oh that sounds pretty cool he's like you want to come over you can you know you can you can be my my assistant i'm like oh that sounds awesome so i went over to his house one weekend day and and learned that uh being an assistant wasn't all that glamorous. Uh, basically, I got to wash and clean everything for him, so he was like jackpot. Uh, you know, I got to, I get to do all the fun stuff, and I'm just going to make him clean everything, which is it's, it's a good introduction to uh, to homebrewing and brewing in general. You learn really really early on that it's it's not glamorous work, and you're basically a a glorified janitor at the end of the day. Um, but that you know, after that, you know, I. I in spite of, of the tasks that day, I, I, really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed it. So I just started, I just started buying books. I, I bought Charlie Papazian's book, enjoy homebrewing, like a lot of homebrewers. That was the first, my first kind of, uh, intellectual dive in, into, into brewing. And, um, I remember, uh, my brother bought a homebrew kit and kind of off the shelf, you know, plastic tub, make it on your stovetop. Um, you know, all, all extract, uh, beer, um, which turned out horribly and, you know, but I, I, in spite of the results, I, I still enjoyed the process and just kind of my brother and I just, you know, I was a practicing attorney and he was in finance and it was a fun thing for us to do on the weekends. You know, uh, our wives would, would hang out inside and, and, you know, chat and my brother and I would you know, started in my kitchen, but ended up out in my garage at, at at one point. And, you know, we sit out there and drink beers and, and, and and make beer. And, um, you know, for me, it was kind of, it, it was, it it turned into kind of a, a a passion, you know, a hobby of mine that I I really, I really enjoyed Um, probably because I hated my work so much. So it was like, for me, it was like, this was something after, you know, you know, a- after work, um, I could, I, I, something to look forward to. And so I really dove into it and I was just pretty much self-taught, didn't go to brewing school or anything. And, you know, how did I turn professional? Well, like, I, I don't know, I guess I, I, I started a brewery. That's how I turned professional, but there was no, there was no, I didn't get any degree or anything. Um, and, you know, that that's not an uncommon story in our industry, which is, I think what makes it pretty cool is that a lot of us are just uh, people that were following a passion and, in. in are, are, you know, kind of trial and error and, um, yeah, I mean, then, and then eventually, uh, I, I realized my own, uh, the limits of my own abilities and I hired brewers that were way better than I was to, to brew beer for us.
0: So, um, that's kind of how it kind of how it started. And, uh, and for you, tell us a little bit about how you came up to Maine.
2: Uh, so I've been... I've been coming to maine since i was little we used to come up here almost every summer and um about five years ago i was uh i was working in washington dc i worked for um church, the nrg uh group um so rustico church key and was the starting uh, gm of blue jacket brewery and I was getting a little little burnt out on DC and uh, city living, and knew I needed to make a change. Um, took a couple visits to Maine just to sort of see if this was a good fit, and ended up moving up here. Um, I worked uh, elsewhere for another year, and then was putting some feelers out, and uh, just sort of happened happened in at the right time uh, to work for Navy Beer Company, and I'd known these guys uh, for I think since about. Uh, 2012, um, Church Key had been the first uh, bar in D.C. to bring uh, Main Beer Company in, and uh, Peeper was the first beer that I had from them, and it was just a soul on it right away. It was like, this is up my alley, just very clean, very refreshing, no no nonsense to it, just a really perfect beer, and it has, it has remained one of my favorites for sure.
0: Yeah, Church Key and that whole group was pretty influential. I remember even as a beer buyer in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, that was a, a bar and a group that we looked at pretty closely as far as being able to see um, what was coming up in beer at that time. And I remember seeing that Maine started getting distribution down there and getting my hopes up immediately that maybe Chicago would be up next. And I don't know, if, I don't remember if we were that far behind, but uh, we yeah. were very fortunate to get it over there.
1: the. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in spite of of, of some aspects of it that are less desirous. The the, the one thing it really has going for it in terms of beer distribution laws, it's the Wild West. And you can import any beer in the United States, import any beer into the territory, into the district, um, and and not have to basically sign a deal with a wholesaler and go through all the logistical hoops that you normally have to do when you ship beer from one state to another. And so so Greg Engert there and, and Anne and her crew, they could basically call any brewery in the country and be like, Hey, we, we love put, what you do. Put yeah, a pallet, put a pallet of kegs together. You know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll help you get it out here. And we deliver it to their door. Yep.
0: Yeah. I remember meeting people from DC at three Floyds who were loading up beers and taking it over there. And I thought that was uh, yeah, you pretty, pretty, off, pretty interesting.
1: You <laughs> load up your own truck and drive it down and drop it off at a bar.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's bootlegging in the, <laughs> almost yeah. bootlegging in the capital. That's ironic. Um, so uh, for you, Dan, were there business practices, ethics, or kinds of things that you saw in the legal world that gave you ideas for uh, how you wanted to run your own business or principles that were going to be important for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just it was in the legal thing. world, it was just looking out at the world that, you know, I, we lived in um legal or, not, or non-legal uh you know I, I going into you know going into into law school i, mean, I think is the motivation of a lot of lawyers is you know you go into it and you're like i'm going to come out and i'm going to change the world right and then you realize well i've got you know six figure student debt and the only people that are going to pay me enough to be able to pay off my student loans are large corporate law firms and so i've got to go work there and then you go work there and you end up working for you know, you're doing. I was doing, um, you know, basically just corporate litigation. So one big company suing so another company over a meaning and a doc, you know, meaning of a word in a document, and spending oodles of money, all while at the same time, you know, kind of, you know, not treating employees with respect, and you know, kind of crying poor, and not giving you know health insurance and all that kind of stuff. And I saw the stuff that you know, I knew what they were paying you know for for legal fees and stuff, and um and also you know it was 2000 in kind of 2007 2008 is when the idea of starting a brewery hatched in my brother and mine's you know in, in our mind uh that it could be, become a reality i think my brother had thought of the idea well before then but once he once i took up home he finding because he's not a brewer he's like oh this could actually work that was you know you 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 guys remember, um, you know, that was kind of the beginning of the Great Recession and Bear Stearns fell and Wall Street collapsed. And, you know, you, you, know, you could see, and I lost, my, I lost my job, I got laid off, um, you know, law firms were shedding, uh, you know, junior associates and you could just see all around you how, how you know, uh, just people, normal people working people who didn't really do anything wrong, uh, you know, their lives got destroyed. Um, and, and in large part by by greed and reckless capitalism. And you know, I, I'm a firm believer in in a free market system. And I love, I love, you know, I wouldn't want to live in, in any other kind of system. But I also saw the ugly underbelly of it. And there, I, I, my brother and I, like, there's got to be a better way to better way to run a business. Because if there, if if there's not, then we're all screwed in the long run, one way or the other. Um, you know so and it wasn't just employees it was the environment as well you know companies externalizing uh costs on onto the environment uh through, you know, pollution or 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 whatever um and so you know for, for my brother and i it was um it, it was really more of uh when we decided to start the company uh, it wasn't we, we didn't do it with the motivation to go out and conquer the world Uh, We didn't do it with the motivation to go get as big as we can, as fast as we can, you know, kind of pump it and dump it, sell it to somebody and make a lot of money. We did it to try to prove a point that you can run a company, a successful company. Um, So there's no point in trying to run a company if you don't want to try to be successful. Um, But you can you can be successful and also do good at the same time in that, you know, I think too often, at least throughout my life, I've been told whether it's, you know, through, you know, through popular culture or whatever, or, or in school, that the way that you make money is to kind of pinch pennies, cut corners, treat people bad, and start to the cost of the environment. That's how you maximize profit. Um, but we didn't believe that. We, we thought that if you actually flip that paradigm on its head, that traditional thinking, you could be successful as well. So treat your employees really well, treat the environment with respect. Um, you could be incredibly successful because um, one, your your employees are going to, you know, ideally, right, they're going to like, they're going to take some satisfaction and pride in, in their job, knowing that they're, they're working, you know, for, for a company that cares, uh, your customers are going to realize that you're, you're a company that has a heart that has a, a pulse, uh, and they're going to patronize, you know, you're, they're going to want to patronize your company. Um, and so that's what we set out to do. And we didn't know if it would work, but we certainly saw we weren't. This wasn't a novel idea. You know, there are companies that came before us, um, Patagonia being kind of, of one example that that we were aware of at the time uh, that lived by the you know, kind of socially conscious corporate ethos, and and were incredibly successful. Um, so we knew we knew it could work, and and so that's that was kind of the that was the the experiment that we we set out on. And if we failed, we failed, you know, and I. I wouldn't have been the end of the world for me. I could have gone back out and gotten another job at a law firm and not like my job, but shit. I mean, that's what, so I'm not allowed to cuss, but heck, that's what, uh, I mean, that, 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 that's no different than millions of other Americans, right? They, they go to work, they don't like what they do, and they, they, they come home, they find satisfaction with other things. Um, uh, we, we just knew that we were going to do it and take this leap of faith and basically invest all the money that we had at the time in something. We we're going to do it um, in, in do it on our own terms can you kind of guide us through this uh, moral approach that you take towards sustainability and um, what are kind of the challenges that you come across as a small company with limited capital um, in taking initiative and trying to be sustainable, especially when brewing beer, which is a a waste heavy product that we produce in the U S yeah, for sure. On one level it's moral, but I guess, um, and personally, I mean, personally, it's moral, but I think um, that more importantly, uh, in order for this kind of, I think, ethic to be adopted widely, I always pitch, it's good business. This, this is not only is it the right thing to do, it's a good, it's a good thing to do by the bottom line. You can be incredible. you can be incredibly successful. And in fact, by more successful, if you operate this way know, challenging that, that, again, that traditional paradigm of, you know, cutting costs, cutting corners, um, you know, treating, treating people, um, you know, treating people like they're disposable. Um, this is actually a better business model. Um, you know, that's, I think that is a more important message to the general population, um, than trying to preach at people. People don't like to be told that, that they're, their, their thinking is, is, is wrong or corrupt or whatever. Um, so reach, a, I, I always try to reach people kind of on a, just practical, from a practical standpoint, um, but there's no doubt challenges because it's different. Um, and I think you just have to, you have to go into it with uh, a, a firm understanding of who you are in a firm mission uh, and let that guide you and realize you're not gonna do it all on day one. You know, you you can, you know, my brother and I, we started, you know, we each invested $10,000. We couldn't go out and buy a solar array to power our brewery on, you know, that kind kind of startup capital. Um, But we knew that as we grew, we weren't going to lose sight of why we started the company. So as we grew and became more successful, we could adopt more uh, either environmentally responsible brewing practices or employ different equipment or provide better benefits to employees. Um, it's kind of something that you, as long as it's top of mind as you're, you're growing and, and, uh, putting that, um, kind of putting that credo into practice, um, you know, it, it's the two things happen at the same time, you know, uh, and you don't, don't, would never expect someone to to, you know be you know be able to operate their brewery say the way we operate our brewery now um as as a startup but it's it's just it's having the commitment i think is what's important
2: and i think to add to that the you know it's important you know when we talk about um what we do as a company a lot of people like oh you're so big you have all the solar it's like well we're always that way I think people sometimes discount the little things and it's like if you take steps every single day and it just becomes ingrained in your company culture uh, i use the example of we have pretty much in every room you can walk into in this building there's a recycling bin and a trash can and in some rooms also a compost can and before i started working here i recycled stuff sometimes when it was handy but when it's there when it faces you like every single time I go to throw something out and face with the decision of one of three bins to put it in you start becoming really really conscious of that and it gets to a point where it's just second nature and now I go other places and I'm like ah, I don't even know I'm just going to take this home and take care of it myself and I think people think those things are very little but they add up and over time when you look at what an impact that's made, it's it's really important and it helps helps you lead to those bigger things. And I think, you know, also with solar, things like that, people are like, oh, it's, you know, your successful business, there are grants. There are all these amazing programs that can allow people to achieve some of these sustainability things, given it takes work, our, you know, our accountant and, um, you know, uh, several other members of our team, the amount of work that they did to get us a REAP grant uh, which helps provide rural areas with, uh, solar and renewable energy options, you know, ton of work went into that, but that helped us finance all of that. And that's, that's things that so many people have access to that they're not taking advantage of. So there's a lot out there and it's just starting small and work your way up and you can accomplish a lot.
1: Broadening it out from just, uh, your company standpoint. Um, you're a member of the 1% for the planet. Um, and you've been a member from the start. This is, uh, when we look at sustainability, you're, you're, you're taking it from an individual level and a company level to the whole world. How did you find them? What was the process of getting into this organization and being a part of it? Again, this kind of goes back to the, well, before the beginning, before we started the company when we were just, you know, trying to you know, putting pen to paper and formulating a business plan. Um, you know, we knew kind of broadly speaking, what, what kind of company we wanted to be, but, um, we struggle with ways, again, this goes back to, you know, what can you do starting out as a small brewery? You know, we were, a you know, we were, a I I brewed on a one barrel homebrew system and we had one seven barrel fermenter and, you know, basically bottled homebrew style. Like how, how can you have an impact and how can you show others really? Cause that's that's as important. It's, it's, it's important to do it obviously, but it's also important to show others that it can be done and, and lead by example, so that other people adopt other small businesses adopt. That was, that was a large part of, of, of our, um, uh, of our ideas to be an influencer. Um, And so we, I, I, I think I was just scrolling through the internet one day, uh, looking at brewery websites, and I think I happened upon New Belgium's website, and they had this logo of one percent for the planet on it. And so I kind of went down the rabbit hole and looked into this organization. My brother and I talked about it, and the beauty of one percent for the planet is one, it's it's a it's a kind of a tangible um, you know symbol uh, of your commitment to you know environmental stewardship and being a responsible you know business. Um, but it's one person, it's a percentage. So it's 1% of your top line revenue. Um, so it doesn't matter how big you are. It's not a dollar commitment. You know, if, if it was a hundred thousand dollars for the planet, well, we never could have made that pledge. We didn't, we didn't make any money. So we couldn't have certainly couldn't have given a hundred thousand dollars, but it is 1% and the idea behind it. Um, and part of his genius is, is that if every company just does a tiny bit uh, to give back to help support the health of, of the, our planet, uh, we can basically alleviate, um, a lot of, 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 you know, the, the climatic challenges that we face. And so when we were, you know, when we were just starting out and we, my brother and I weren't paying ourselves, but, you know, you know, we made, they made a hundred thousand dollars the first year we weren't paying ourselves, you know, we, we we cut a check for a thousand bucks. You know, well, you make a million dollars. You you know you cut a check for ten thousand dollars. You know, and and, and and so as you grow, the that's the cool thing is as you grow and get bigger, you give more away, but it's still just one percent. Um, no matter how you, no matter how you do the math, it's always just one percent. Um, so relatively speaking, it's it's never uh, it's never going to put you under. Um, and so to us, it was like, yeah, that was a no brainer. Like this is a way that we can. of put our money where our mouth is you know we're not this isn't just empty empty jargon that we're trying to use as a marketing ploy to get people to buy our beer we're going to show them that we're actually putting our money where our mouth is and we're we're going to commit to doing this year over year um and so that's that's why we decided to join and you know it's it's you know one of the one of the you know those are checks that i love to write every
0: year um and i and
1: because if they're bigger year over year, that means our
0: company's been more successful year over year. And uh, for you, and as uh, someone involved in marketing for the company, uh, tell us a little bit about how 1% for the planet and these initiatives play in your day-to-day and in the communication about things happening at the brewery.
2: Sure, well, when I was offered the job, I was kind of like, all right, marketing, I, like, I have been doing this in some format in my job but I was like I don't know it's selling things and then I was told well our marketing is based around our one percent for the planet partnerships and I was like oh anyway, so I'm talking about beer and I'm talking about doing good and giving back cool that's that's easy that's I mean you can't ask for a better marketing job than that because you know talk about something that makes you feel good to sell um you know i get to use our marketing to talk about our partnerships uh talk about you know center for wildlife in cape netic that uh rescues rehabilitates and releases wild animals uh wolf's neck center down the street from us that um focuses on sustainable and regenerative agriculture um land preservation you know we work with land trusts and it's you you don't run out of things to talk about, and it's exciting. And it's exciting to see people are, people love our beer. And you get to incorporate that story into everything that we do. And you'll notice a lot of our beers are connected to our 1% for the Planet nonprofits. Uh, lunch is named after a Whale, spotted by Allied Whale, um, a, that are part of the College of the Atlantic. Uh, we have Woods and Waters, which is an IPA named uh, after the commemoration of Woods and Waters National Monument. Um, we have more, but it's just it's it's really cool to expose people to places, organizations, and actions that wouldn't wouldn't normally cross their mind. Um, Dan's brother David always says, you know, think of our our labels as a billboard. You know, we have all the space that we can talk about a lot of things. He's like. Do you want to talk about what hops are in the beer, or do you want to talk about this great organization that we're doing or uh, this great effort to preserve salt marshes down the street from us? It's like, oh, cool. You know, so it's in terms of marketing, it's really exciting and it makes it makes that job um, a, a really cool thing to do because you're you're doing you're doing more and that's that's what the company's about.
0: It's interesting. There's a, a couple of different sort of models that companies use when they're talking about giving and when they're uh, incorporating marketing in some way. And there's a transactional cycle that some companies employ where it's more or less of a give a dollar for a pint and then we will donate that dollar where it's based on the consumption that's happening in house or on premise. Uh, that doesn't really impact. I mean, that's a taproom initiative, less a uh, top line initiative, which is what you're interested in. But it seems as though what you're talking about is actually not cyclical, like the transactional model, but it's actually parallel because you're growing together with this organization, and there's a tangible good that comes with it that hopefully grows as you hopefully grow.
1: Yeah, that, that that's that's the idea behind it, and you know, we know. I mean. We use marketing, but that's probably not even the best word to describe (laughs) what we don't I would say people do like what kind of marketing you do. I'm like, we don't really do marketing, and I don't mean to sound like arrogant, you know, but but um it's telling a story. It's
0: storytelling.
1: I mean maybe they and I'm sure if you went to marketing school, which I didn't, there's some form of marketing that they call storytelling. I don't I don't know, I don't don't care, but changing my title. Yeah, (laughs) storyteller, storyteller. You know what? Along, you know, what when, when my brother and I were were starting out, um, was actually our, our who, the gentleman who's our current uh, CEO. This is back when we were just drinking buddies in the industry. He was at a, a brewery in Kansas City Boulevard, and he told us a story that he had heard uh, from I think it was Fritz Maytag uh, at Anchor uh, told told him, or he had heard that that Fritz used this. Uh, he said. Well, to be a successful brewer, and I think you could, I think you could broadly apply it to be, say, to be a successful at least consumer product, you need two things. Uh, that's good beer and a good story. Uh, you, you need, you need the product, you, you need, it has to be quality, top-notch, and, uh, but in order to differentiate yourself, you, you've, you've, you've got to be authentic and you have to have an authentic story to tell people um, that resonates with them. Uh, and when you're authentic, you don't you don't need to manufacture uh, periodical marketing initiatives. You just keep telling your story and what you stand for. Uh, it doesn't require ad campaigns, and uh, I guess a lot of that stuff, which is all incredibly expensive and and, and often wasteful because it doesn't work. Um, so that's kind of what we've done from day one. Is like we're just going to tell people what we stand for and going to appeal to everybody, but that, that's fine. Um, but it will, to those that it does appeal to, it will establish a, a loyalty to main beer company that no advertising, no amount of dollars spent in an
0: advertising agency or marketing campaigns uh, could, ever, could ever purchase. Do you get a lot from people? wow, you've inspired me to think about business in this way, uh, in this uh, parallel manner with charity work instead of the transactional, uh, transactional model.
2: Yeah, we got a lot, we got a lot of people reaching out like, how does this work? How do you do this? Um, one of the cool things, 1% for the Planet actually creates a really cool business network. Um, we're friends with a lot of other 1% uh, for the planet businesses and have actually gotten a lot of people to sign on and just co- and they reach out to us and ask, you know, what, what inspired you to do this? How does this work? We could never give as much as you. And it's like, well, there's so much, there's so much depth to the program. It's like, yes, there's a financial commitment, but you can also do volunteer hours. You can do in-kind donations. You can, you know, there, there's so many ways to be a part of it and they're really enriching as a company. Um, I think one of the things we're really proud about is the close connections we have with all of our partners. Um, you know, first name basis, talk to them like weekly. It's very, very cool. But I think we've talked with a lot of other, you know, just two weeks ago, I talked with Topa Topa Brewing out in California. Um, and it's nice because we we have similar commitments. We have uh, similar, um, business policies, and it's great to have that network of people that you can reach out to. How are you doing this? How are you answering these questions? Have you heard about this organization? And um, it it's just a good network, and it's cool to inspire other people to be part of it.
1: Yeah, and I, and I hear, I mean, I've, I've had, you know, several uh, numerous small business owners, you know, come up to me, whether it's just kind of, you know, up here locally, you know, in Freeport, they're in a tasting room. and They're a small company. Uh, we're the two builders. Um, uh, it's a local construction company, but they're, yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't matter. But um, you know, they saw what we were doing. Like, oh, we could do this too. You know, so oh, they they uh, told, Emerald Builders, Emerald, thank yeah. you. Oh. Um, yeah, they wear the green shirts. Emerald okay. Builders, uh, Love
2: Point Oysters. Love
1: Point Oysters. Uh, you know, we're, we're here on the ocean. Um, Aquaculture is a big part of our our local economy. Um, and I'm not saying we were, we were the only influence, but certainly they saw us like 1% of the planet. They're doing it. They're successful. Um, you know, I care about the planet. Um, and I want to do something and I, and it looks like I can, I can have the best of both worlds. I can have a successful company and, you know, help, you know, help give back and, and help, um, you know, help, help make the, the planet a healthier place to, to live on. Um, which is, you know, like again, kind of that's that's part of the idea of like when we started, it was um, it was to show to show others that you can be uh, to serve as that model to say this can be done. And and another cool thing about one percent, you know, um, is to the extent possible, we we were able to support each other. So I don't know how many items that we have uh, co branded, but. Oh of companies, Um, whether whether it's Patagonia, who's obviously one of the the largest 1% members. um, We try and, so almost all of the merch that we
2: do in our tasting room is either other 1% companies or other companies that have a similar environmental ethos. And Alex, you know this, when we do events, um, we look for for bars and uh, bottle shops that if they're not 1%, at least share that need for, hey, we'd love to do this event, but can we make it a fundraiser for a local nonprofit that is important to you guys? Kind of
1: supporting those who
0: kind of support each other, trying yep. to build each other, build each other up, which is it, it creates a cool community. I want to talk a little bit about your beers now. The beers are like really elegant and they're very expressive, the actual liquid in the bottles and then the Branding itself, which we've touched on a little bit, uh, show a certain honesty that's also reflected in the liquid. And it's, I mean, I thought even in 2011, which or 2012, which was the first time I tried the beers, I thought that was unique then. And uh, my thoughts certainly haven't changed in, in 2021. Um, I wanted to ask, how do your values sort of manifest in the ingredients and the flavors of your beers?
1: You know, I guess... Going back to when I was, you know, kind of first started out, um, you know, up here in the, you know, kind of uppermost northeast corner of the country, uh, we didn't get a lot of fresh hoppy beers. Uh, we got hoppy beers, but it was mis- missing that crucial adjective of, of fresh. So we would get, you know, we would get some stone beers and we get some Sierra Nevada beers we'd get some rogue beers uh we'd get some bear republic beers but you know by the time they you know kind of made their way across the the country and sat in the wholesaler's warehouse for who knows how long and then sat on a retailer's shelf or for how long um they were you know half of what they originally you know started out as and they, they weren't what the brewer him or herself intended them to be um but i knew i loved american hoppy beers in spite of the fact that i couldn't often get my hands on uh, a good you know represent, representative of the style so i was like well if i can't get it that's what i to start making um in in new england i don't know if you may or may not know this you know it's a, it's a brewing community that's that is very uh rich in in one of the kind of the pioneers um the pioneering craft beer community is what is new england but it's having You know influenced by british styles for obvious reasons um and so those were the beers that breweries around here this was you know what like you know what 13 14 years ago it wasn't that long ago relatively speaking but those were the beers that dominated uh the craft beer scene in new england um and so i'm like i want to make american style hoppy beer so that was kind of that that set me down a path um, and then, you know, as I started, you know, walking down that path, I'm like, well, what do, what do I and what don't I um, gravitate towards when it comes to this style? Uh, I knew I loved really punchy, hoppy aroma and flavor. Um, that is what I really liked. The, the, the aggressive bitterness, not as much. Um, I could do it, but after a, a, a beer of an extremely bracing, bracingly bitter um, IPA or, or even pale or whatever, it's like my, my palate's wrecked. So I'm like so I sought out to try to create beers that um, were well balanced extremely aromatically uh, in flavor hop forward um, but that left the palate very clean uh, with enough balance you know enough bitterness to balance out the sweetness um, uh, it were clean. It was finished very, very clean. And so I just started experimenting and, you know, I, you know, I was a, I was a home brewer, so I would listen to, I would listen to homebrew podcasts. Samil Zaneshef was someone who I, I listened to his podcast back in the days and learn about what brewers were doing and different techniques that homebrewers were experimenting with, you know, cause when you really think about craft beer, um, you know, we're just a bunch of, 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 of of crazy people trying crazy things, because we did it on a homebrew scale. So if you messed up, it cost you 20 bucks. You know, we weren't doing it on large production scale. So we, we had the liberty as, as small brewers, as homebrewers, just to try crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and so that's what I sought out to do. And so that kind of eventually uh, evolved into, I guess, a stylistic, um, this, uh, my own kind of personal style. Which was no matter what the beer, you know, what if it was a hoppy beer, you know, what what kind of hoppy beer, you know, I, I try to pack it with as much flavor and aroma as possible, um, but yet leave it finishing very, very clean, um, very, 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 very clean on on the palate. You know, not overly sweet, you know, um, not too bitter, and yeah, that's kind of been a guiding principle, uh, even as I've you know stepped back from from brewing. You know, all the all the brewers around here, that they they know. Uh, what our what our style is has kind of kind of become kind of synonymous with, with our brand um, and i don't know if that if there's some deeper uh if that's some deeper reflection of my uh, my, my my morality or not I, I i don't i don't think of it on that level i just think of it as that's kind of what i like to drink uh, and i think you know and i do think you know brewers like bakers like chefs um are artisans it's 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 a craft. It, it, it's an it's an art uh, at its at its you know base level. It's an art and a science. And um, just kind of that was the way that I that, that I I chose to express you know kind of what I like
0: through through beer. And for you and you were at Church Key, and so you were in a little bit of a different situation where you had a lot of things that you were able to try on a regular basis. So. How did the main beers speak out differently from everything that you were exposed to on a daily basis in DC?
2: Oh man, when I think back, it's like I had access to 500 bottles, 50 drafts, five casks, and was trying everything. But I remember the first sip of paper I had, and it was just clean. Like just, it, it had all the flavor, but not overpowering. But I don't know, it, it was really the perfect perfect beer and like I to this day I can like I remember what tap line it was on because that was my that was my go-to shift drink for quite some time and I think you know there's definitely something you know there's my father always said there's a time and a place for every beer every single beer out there that includes that Miller light in your fridge you know everything um but what I find myself coming back to most of the times are those very clean, straightforward beers. Um, you see a lot of brewers right now turning towards uh, Pilsners. Um, and I think Keeper sort of has that aspect to it, that it's you know, just a very straightforward, not overwhelming beer. And I think that you can say that about like a lot of our beers. It's just they're very balanced. And I don't think you always find that as much. So it makes it really stand out when you do.
0: Um,
2: but yeah, keeper Moe, I love our pale
0: ales a lot. Brown glass half-liter bottles, bottle conditioning. So one of the things, uh, one of the things that I've loved most about the beers from uh, from you, apart from the fact that the bottle can be used as a weapon to defend my home after it's uh, empty, uh, is the fact that you do employ bottle conditioning. And I was kind of curious about if that was something that has kind of stuck long-term from home brewing, if you're looking for some, some, uh, something out of that, that, uh, lends to clarity, uh, was that something that was inspired from beers from Europe that you may have tried? Uh, how has that been a practice that has kind of continued over time?
1: Um, I think it was originally born out of necessity. We had, we, again,
0: we, we, we had no money
1: for a filter. I would have known how to operate a filter. Um, we didn't have, I think the, the, I didn't have the sophistication or I think resources to be able to, you know, filter and force carbonate beer at the beginning. The I, like I said, you know, kind of at the outset, we really started out as a glamorized home group you know, operation, you know, we, we were, I think mean, we were kind of a nano brewery before that term existed. Um, and, and so it, I think it was necessity, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a leap of faith because I knew brewers, Sierra Nevada being the one, probably the most famous example of a, a domestic you know, craft brewery who was doing hobby hoppy beers, but they were bottle conditioned. Um, so we knew it could be done. it be done you know well. And obviously, you know, I think we do it much better now than we did you know, 11, uh, 12 years ago. Uh, we've really refined the process and people that are way smarter than me, you know, are, are able to really dial in uh, that conditioning process so that the beer is as clean as it can possibly be. Um, but it also, you know, so it, it was it, it was necessary. But I think, fortunately, it, it also, uh, at least for for the, for hoppy beers, I think it does provide um, bottled beers extra shelf life stability um, because yeast is you know you guys probably know um, is a natural. Uh, kind of scrubber of, of oxygen and oxygen destroys beer and it const- it destroys food, oxidation um and yeast you know when they're when it is bottle conditioning when yeast is going through that second uh, that second round of fermentation it uses oxygen to, to help it ferment uh, the sugar uh, so it does provide for for i think uh, an aspect of, of, of the quality of, of the beer uh, that is just i think a, a just a a really kind of fortunate <laughs> a fortunate side you know side benefit uh to it and so that's that's why we have kept doing so now we, we could if we wanted to force carbonate force carbonate every single beer we made um but i think uh you know for particular you know for, for the beers that we're still continuing the bottle condition it would the quality would suffer now we do force carbonate some of our beers because i think they benefit from not bottle conditioning um but uh no we're we're, we're we're firmly committed to the bottle, the bottle conditioning, uh, for for almost all of our hoppy beers.
0: And the, as far as the medium itself goes, uh, for the for the bottles, is there an env- an environmental consideration that goes into using uh, brown glass uh, versus uh, versus cans?
1: Um, again, back at, going back to the beginning, it was uh, one cans really weren't a thing, right? believe it or not as ubiquitous as they are, uh, I think maybe Oscar blues with the exception of them, there wasn't a craft brewery that I know of in the country that was using cans and you couldn't get your hands on cans, uh, even if you, if you wanted to, especially at the scale that we were brewing on. So you were by default, you, you put your beer into glass. Uh, so that being the case, you know, we, for a whole host of reasons, um, we settled on this 500 milliliter bottle. Uh, but just so have it, the only place you can get it, uh, was, was Germany. Um, so it's, it's shipped from Germany and that's why you said. You could use it as a weapon. And as you know, on the continent in, in Canada as well, they, they re, they reuse glass, so it's built like super durable. Um, and so, but we liked, we liked the shape of it. We liked the statement it made. We liked the, the size of it. It wasn't 22 ounces, but it wasn't 12. It was kind of a happy medium in between. Um, and so it just. That's just kind of again. It goes back to the circumstances under which we started, um, and obviously we, we, we stuck to that uh, in spite of, of, of constant questions and uh, as to why, why 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 would we do something so crazy as to continue to put beer into brown glass? I know it's I know it's nuts, but
0: well, I mean, you're probably have had this, the last laugh on that with the pandemic. Unfortunately, it's been challenging for. Pretty uh to source aluminum, and so I assume that these half-liter bottles were probably in decent stock for manufacturers. So um, it ended up maybe not being the the worst thing. I, I think what it is is that a lot of people talk about the usability of cans, and sometimes it comes into a vi- an environmental and excuse me an environmental discussion as well. And I was just kind of curious if uh, because you've also probably had. A choice at a certain point with uh, expansions and things like that to say, would we put a canning line in? You know, breweries have made that decision before, and so I was curious if that had come up uh, contemporarily.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, going back to the environmental environmentally friendly, I think that, that I, I would I would challenge the assumption that that aluminum cans are more environmentally friendly, and I don't I don't really care to have the debate, um, but you know. Uh, I, I'm comfortable putting, you know, our, our beer in, in, in brown glass, knowing that the other option is, is aluminum. I'll leave it at that. Um, but, but there's a, like again, there's a time and a place for everything. Yeah, there's times when I'm out on a boat or you know backpacking or, or skiing. You know, I'll, I'll, I won't buy my own beer. I'll buy beer that's in Gans. That's that's perfectly fine. Uh, I want
2: a bottle everywhere <laughs> I go.
1: <guess. laughs> uh, so you know. Um, was there an environmental, con- I mean, there's always an environmental consideration to everything we do is I don't know that there's a better option than what we're currently doing.
0: No, absolutely. And I do feel as though the argument that people make about aluminum isn't necessarily correct either. It, it's just, uh, I, I wanted your perspective on it because I think that it is, you do have an opportunity to say something that uh, people that are using glass now um can state when it comes to why they wanted to use that apart from uh aluminum
1: i would say that there are advantages to aluminum them being more environmentally friendly is one of them I,
2: it's a question i get a lot on social media as well and you know, as dan said there there are pros and cons to both and you know when you weigh them out Glass isn't too bad either, I guess you could say. It's, um, you know, because you'd also have to put in consideration changing our entire uh, per, our packaging line, changing, you know, all of that. And so it, there, there are pros and cons to both. And I, my recommendation when people ask that is, I think, as long as we're being very conscious about how we're using glass and what we're doing and... Um, different steps that we're taking in-house to be as,
1: you know, sustainable as possible, we're doing all right. I think, I think as brewers, uh, we have much larger, uh, concerns about how we operate than, than glass versus aluminum. Cause I think net net, there's
0: not that much difference, but there, we can make a tons of difference in other areas of our production. Thank you. I, I agree. And I think that there is more, so let's, Talk about some of those things. I know that uh, using solar power is something that's important for uh, for Maine Beer. So, when it came time to make an expansion in 2018, um, how did you decide that that solar power was going to be uh, a priority in that moment? And how does that kind of relate to your resource usage uh, choices?
1: Well, I mean, yes. I mean, so at least in in New England, um, you know, solar in terms of renewable, being able to invest in um, you know, renewable energy generation, you know, solar is, is, is the go, is the go-to, um, even though people think, and someone asked me the other day, like, New England, how can you have solar? I'm like, well, the sun shines you know, We're not, Ala- you know, we're not Alaska. Um, uh, now we're not California either or Arizona, but, um, it works and it, and it, and it makes sense. Um, you know, but the, the decision to in, invest in solar, um, again, this kind of goes back to, The conversation we were having early on about kind of do what you can when you can do it. Um, I don't remember exactly what year it is. Must have must have been 2014 or 15. We did our first solar installation. You know, my brother and I we were talking in in my office, and you know, we we were at a point where we 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 couldn't make any more beer, that is, our fermenters were at capacity. Um, But we also knew that from the day we started, like when we can afford it, we want to invest. We, we want to power our brewery with solar and so we were at a point where you know we had a little bit of money we knew that there was some grant money out there uh, so like well do we you know do we invest in more fermenters and use the money there or do we do we invest in solar and we said well you know we made a commitment when we started this company that we were going to operate in a certain way and to do what's right motto kind of was put into action like what's the right thing to do here is it to make more beer to make more money just for the sake of making more money or should we use the money that we've made to invest in uh, renewable infrastructure at the brewery? And so we, that's what we did. It was kind of it was a relatively easy decision, and so we did that in in kind of. Syntax. What we learned was, um, and this kind of goes to you know to just be be a good person, and people like you, and, and you know patronize your company we put we put the solar array our first our original solar array on the side of our building and then we had a solar tracker i know i'm doing a hand motion and this is an audio but uh that kind of follows the sun so it maximizes uh you know how much how much solar energy you can you can produce in the day it follows the sun as it crosses the sky but it was extremely visible uh even the solar tracker was half the size of our brewery it was huge and so anybody that drove by like holy smokes you know that's a huge, you know, they have this huge solar, these panels on their roofs, or it's covered, and they got this big solar tracker, uh, and be like, that's really cool. Like, here's a small business that's just, that just, you know, that just did this. You, didn't, you don't see that uh, up in Maine. Uh, so it generated goodwill. It generated, you know, it talk about a marketing and PR, and you can't. Buy at least buy directly. Uh, we did it by doing the right thing. It was an unintended, kind of unplanned um, benefit of just doing the right thing. Um, and so then, flash forward to when we built the building out the new brewery. I mean, the new brewery was specifically designed to maximize flat roof space, so we could house as many solar panels on top of it as we could. Now these you can't see, so no one would be telling we have them, but they don't have the visual impact uh, as our, our initial initial project, but I think, I think it's, we're on-site generation of, of renewable energy offsets 50% yeah, 50,
2: 51.
1: of our Sorry, total yeah. uh, energy consumption, which as you know, a, a brewery, you know, this is where breweries can really move the needle in terms of their practices and where we consume uh, and, and a tremendous amount of, of energy to, to run um, our brew houses and our packaging equipment. Um, so, again, when it came time to building this new building, it was, it was a no-brainer. And Now, we didn't put solar panels on right away. We had to pay for the new building. But, again, we made the commitment mentally. As soon as we can, as soon as we're
0: making more beer and have more money, we're going to invest
1: in more solar
0: panels. So, that's what we did. I want to talk a little bit about uh, a family company. Um, for, for you, Dan, what is it like working with your brother and – how? uh What is it like having this be a family company, and for you? And what is it like working uh, for these two guys that are brothers?
1: You know, honestly, you know, and I'm sure everybody has stories either that they were directly involved with or have heard. You know, family companies and the, the, the strife and the, the um, I think the, the problems that can, that can come along with that. But yeah, I think one. I think my brother and I are separated. Enough in, in age, uh, it, that it, it, it's helpful. Um, and I think more I think importantly, from day one, we had very clearly defined uh, roles. That it, you know that is I was in charge of everything related to producing the beer, uh, so recipes, ingredients, uh, you know equipment. Uh, styles like anything that had to do with production—that was my domain—and basically, then everything else was my brother's. And obviously, we, we consult each other and, and you know and bounce ideas off each other. Um, but the, the, the final say, kind of so to speak, was uh, we both had in our in our in our um, domains. Um, and as we've grown, that really hasn't changed. Um, even as our you know company has, has grown and, and more and more people work here, and you know we both kind of have authority over our respective sides of of the the company. Um, so I think just by being kind of upfront at the beginning and in um, you know kind of you know being honest with one another, if one of us is encroaching too far into the other's territory, you know which happens from time to time, um, you avoid. I think you avoid a lot of the the, the pitfalls that can come along with uh, not just family, that's not family business specific maybe any partnership, but um, you know I think being being a family business in some ways like, helps you know because you know at least our family always got along really well, so you know you don't want to disappoint them, you don't want to piss them off, you know that that's so I think in some ways it's an, it, it's been a tremendous asset for for us, but every family is different, obviously. <laughs>
2: yeah I mean in terms of working for a family company it, it's great it's really cool to see you know the very different styles but also um, both Dan and Dave have specialties in their areas and so it's it's great because all of these things feed off each other I like think the funny thing for me when you ask that question is Technically, my sister also works for Dan. <laughs> she's the Federal Affairs Manager for the Brewers Association. So, we've got like a little family <laughs> company right. also working for this family company. It. Uh, <laughs> so, we're, we're, it's all in there. But, you know, it's currently we're in a much larger office. But it, when I first started here, we were in a, a very close. Office space, and it was just—it's always cool to see the back and forth between uh, the two brothers. And you know, as a, a sibling myself, it's like, oh, yeah yeah I know that. But I think it's—it's—it's it's, it's really productive because they're both such great minds in terms of the areas that they specialize in. And I think you need that in a brewery. And so it's a lot of times you'll see breweries where you have an amazing brewer, but they don't have. Uh, the finance side or the design side, or they have all the finance and design, but not a spectacular brewer. So when you have those two things combined, it really makes for a special
1: and unique company. Yeah, I think I, I, think I hit on that. That's a great point, is that we we both bring complete, I would not say completely different, but pretty dramatically different skill sets to to the table. We're different people, different personalities. And I liked making beer. He didn't really care about making beer, but he's got an incredible... Uh, creative mind on the non-beer creative creative side of the business and, and a, uh, a very clear and firm um, understanding of you know finance or whatever and you see i see all quite frequently not just in breweries but a lot of small businesses you know it's hard to, it's hard for one person to have all of those things combined uh, and you'll see breweries fail because the beer was great, but the business was awful and vice versa. Maybe they may have been a sound business person, but with, maybe the beer wasn't bad, but they had to rely on an employee to create the beer for them. Well, employees, an employee, they can leave whenever they want. If that employee leaves, if you don't know how to make that great beer, you're kind of at beholden to them, you know, which has got to be an incredibly nerve wracking, you know, uh, situation for a, a brewery owner to be, and they don't have control over the production. We wouldn't know how to do it, but for uh, someone that they have to hire. So, I, I think it have in that we were just fortunate in that we both brought different skill
0: sets to the table. You brought what
2: the beer has balance.
1: Yeah, balance,
0: right? For uh, for you, Dan, you've begun a second term. Uh, excuse me, second term as a chair for the associate directors board for the Brewers Association. Why is it important to continue to do that kind of work in advocacy? I mean, one, I love it. Uh, I just I I enjoy it.
1: Um, it's not a it's not a burden in any way uh, to me. Um, two, I, it's you know, it's obviously it's an industry that's given you know a, a ton to 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 me to this company. You know, obviously we wouldn't exist but for organizations like the Bruce Association, who you know were were the Brewers Association in the previous iterations of that, you know, composed of, of small brewery owners who had to fight and scrape, uh, to get a seat at the table, so to speak, um, and get people to, to listen to them, whether that was suppliers of raw materials, you know, uh, cans, bottles, boxes, barley, hops, uh, or legislators, um, at the federal and state level. Um, so in some ways I view it as a, um, of, of paying it back uh, of those that that came before and, and not taking the world that we live in now and the atmosphere in which we're able to operate our business didn't just appear overnight magically. Um, it has to be fought for and it has to be guarded. Uh, and so um, I have a certain sense of like, kind of personal responsibility to do, do my part um, and so I'll do it as long as, you know, I'm, I'm able to, uh, before I, I turn off the board and, um, it's, it's a, it's just a great industry to be a part of. And probably the best part of it is you get to meet a bunch of really cool people that I never would have, if I had just been a brewery owner here in, in, in Maine, I never would have been exposed to, uh, the number of individuals that, that I've met traveling the country, whether they be brewery owners, bar owners, uh, you know, off-premise owners, or just craft beer drinkers. Um, it's a, it, 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 as you know, and I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, but we, having come from an industry, you know, the legal profession where people are just fighting and, and cutthroat, um, it was a breath of fresh air to find a, a community like the craft beer community where people, generally speaking, are, are welcoming and embracing um, of even their competition, so to speak, um, so. I, I enjoy what I do, and I've got i got one year left to, as chair, and then two two more years after that, my term's up, and I'm I'm turned off the board.
0: And uh, for you, Anne, hearing uh, from your sister about uh, BA affairs, and then from <laughs> from Dan at work, you've got uh, quite an earful of um, of advocacy, and advocacy is central to what you do. Arguably, when it comes to marketing for uh, main beer companies, so have you. Uh, Do you find sustained passion in advocacy as well?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Brewers Association itself, even before my sister was involved and (laughs) had that connection, um, I just had a lot of admiration for what they do uh, coming from a place like Washington, D.C., where, you know, in in a given night, I was seating congressmen, senators, you know, all all of these movers and shakers. Honestly, the number you know, the number of legislators that I met um, from places that I now live, but uh, people who are passionate about beer, I mean, that's a bipartisan thing right there. People like beer. And so to find um, Republicans, Democrats, independents sitting down together at tables enjoying beer, it's like, all right, discussions can happen. Things, you know, that's uh, the history of our nation talks about people meeting in taverns and legislation getting decided. So I think it's cool to see, um, especially with the Brewers Association, how they work, um, and how they're fighting for breweries, large, small, medium throughout the country. This year, in particular, we've seen how much advocacy they've done in terms of uh, the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act. Um, working uh, with the SBA to get loans approved. I mean, these are all things that are helping you know, I think last year at this time, we were all just like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And all of these actions that are taken by a trade organization like that are helping make that change. And not only that, the, you know, social change that we're seeing, you know, there was a lot of criticism of the beer community throughout the year, um, being actual community or not. And you've seen great steps being taken to Address those issues, address equality, um, you know, and justice, and what we can do to make this community a true community, but better. Uh, so those are those are things that are really exciting to see, and um, advocacy is always going to be a huge part of that.
0: Thank you for bringing that up. That was I wanted to kind of close on that particular note of uh, diversity and inclusion. For a lot of people that are getting into craft beer, uh, some, or I would argue many that I know have gotten in because they're able to volunteer time to go help out somewhere. And so that's not always the time that everyone has. And so that can create some uh, barriers for entry for people. Um, As an organization that is committed to uh, the type of work that you are, uh, on the environmental side. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how this mission can also pertain to diversity and inclusion?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, the two, the, the two issues you mentioned, they, they can't be separated really, I think, intellectually, if you're being intellectually honest, they can't really be separated from one another. Um, and so if you care about the environment, you, you, you need to care about, um, you know, Equity and equality. Um, so, I, I think just inherently, um, I, I pr- me personally speaking, uh, come from a place of, of of knowing that we need to do um, a, a lot of a lot of work. And we we are just a craft beer community. We're 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 not the entire world, but I think we have I think we have an incredibly important uh, megaphone. Uh, to use. Uh, We have an incredibly loyal following. Um, And I think uh, as individual companies and as a trade organization, representing those companies, um, I think if we use that megaphone in the right ways, which I personally don't believe always means just saying the right words, it means taking the right actions. Um, I believe actions speak louder than words. I know that's a cliche, but I think in this particular instance, it's perhaps more Uh, Relevant than other applications, Um, you know, I think there's a lot that that our industry can do to kind of lead and show that industry can be a force for industry. Our industry can be a force, not just individual brewers, uh, for collective action in in you know uh, try to lead by example and make the world a more equitable and just place. But it it look we I mean it, it is. Individual breweries are free to do whatever they want. Their owners can make that decision. Uh, trade associations, not so much. You know, we represent the Brewers Association represents, you know, thousands and thousands of breweries, all of which individually have different opinions on on things. And so, you know, our mission is to represent all brewers. Well, it, it's hard to form a collective, uh, you know, kind of. What what are the collective principles uh, that all, every member would agree that we should be living by? So it's not it's not as easy as is some I think think it should be uh, when you're talking about the organization writ large. Um, but I think the Brewers Association uh, has done uh, a, a lot of work, not just in the past year. Um, there's there's been work going on for years. Uh, when it comes to trying to make the beer, the craft beer community more inclusive and more diverse, um, but I think we've really kind of shined, a, I think, a much brighter light on it in, in the last year and doubled down on our commitment to making sure that, that we're doing everything we can. Again, morally, it, it's the right thing to do. I firmly believe. But as an industry, it's if we want. To increase the number of people we're welcoming into our tap rooms and we're drink, picking craft beer at the bar or taking it out of the cooler, we need to bring more people into the fold and that means being more inclusive. So there's a, there's a moral element to this and then there's a business element to this and I don't care which, which string I have to, to resonate within you to, to get you to buy in. If it's the moral string or if it's the business string, I'll, I'll pluck whatever one I have to um, to, to, get you to buy in that this is, this is, this is the right thing to do. So, you know, I know the Brewers Association, uh, is investing a lot of, a lot of money, uh, in a lot of, uh, into hiring, uh, not only, uh, uh, professionals, uh, to, to, you know, work with us, but in, in programs to, to bring more people into, uh, into our breweries and that is on the production side or in the office side or on. Know, drinking our beer and sitting at, at a table um and it's and it's one of those things that's it's never gonna be solved it, it's a work in progress and we're gonna be working on it until so after well after i'm dead this, you know it, it, these are issues that i think you just have to keep again it's, it's like it's like the environmental issue like you, you just have to always have it at the front of your mind and realize that it, it's not gonna all happen overnight you can't do it all at once don't get frustrated but if that is one of your guiding kind of one of your Guiding stars, and you're always just kind of making decisions through through that that
0: particular lens. You know, you're you're slowly going to to make you know progress. In closing, here, uh, Anne and Dan, do you have any uh, any parting words for the audience today?
1: uh what, what any parting words well uh, one thanks for suffering through this for an hour i'm glad to you uh, I
0: hope you enjoyed
1: your commute to work or school or or, or, or wherever you're heading um you know, hopefully you, you pull a couple nuggets uh out of this that that you find that you find useful and, and entertaining um but no i, I look if you, if you want to sit down and listen to me ramble for an hour. I mean, I, I, I give you give you kudos. Thank you. I appreciate it.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks for drinking our
0: beer. You help us do what we do, which is a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, we're thankful to have your beers in Chicago and anyone that has access to it, I'm sure appreciates it as well. So thank you. And we're looking forward to seeing you hopefully uh, in the future.